say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You are listening to the Roberta Glass True Crime Report, putting the true back in true crime. From New York City, Roberta Glass is now on the record. My guest, T. Gray Hill, is an award-winning documentarian who was born in Pittsburgh, but was raised and resides in Philadelphia. A graduate of Temple University, Hill made waves when his first documentary, Shame of the City, premiered in 2006. Hill returned in 2010 with a fantastic documentary about police officer Daniel Faulkner's killer, Mumia Abu-Jamal, and the four-decade-long innocence campaign to free the cop killer. Last month, December 9th, was the 40-year anniversary of Faulkner's murder. The film, The Barrel of a Gun, takes its title from Chinese Communist leader Mao Zedong's, quote, Power Grows from the Barrel of a Gun. And that seems to be true for Mumia Abu-Jamal, who has amassed supporters such as Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, actor Danny Glover, Alec Baldwin, Sting, the musicians Rage Against the Machine, Beastie Boys, and Ed Asner, just to name a few. As damning as a case as the barrel of a gun makes for Mumia's guilt, it's not the film that Hill set out to make. In fact, Hill was quoted as saying, I looked into this case. If the evidence had led me to Mumia was innocent or got a raw deal, I would have shown that. I followed the trail of truth and it led me down the path where Mumia was guilty, unquote. It is my great pleasure to welcome T. Gray Hill. So, I just want to talk about the circumstances of this crime. I don't think I've seen any other case with these kind of circumstances. So Mumia's brother is in a disreputable part of town in Philadelphia. He goes the wrong way up a one-way street, 
gets pulled over by... Yes. Is that correct, Officer Faulkner? Right now, the area that, that happened is a very trendy area. I just want to emphasize, it's a very nice area. And I was there with some friends uh, having a drink. But back in 1981, that was the red light uh, CD district of Philadelphia. So um, if you wanted to get a prostitute, whether you were gay or straight, you could go there. Uh, if you wanted to get drugs, you could go there and, and, and get drugs on the corner. Whatever you wanted to do, that's where you went, around 13th and Locust. And so that night, Mumia's brother, Billy, was driving the wrong way on a one-way street, uh, which is, it's going to attract police attention. And that's why I speculate in the film, I don't have absolute proof, but I speculate that this was a setup. That was my next question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, in the version you have seen, you know, we all have to make decisions, but I had to cut more of my evidence of why it was a setup because of time. So he's, he's driving down the wrong way on a one-way street. A cop pulls him over, who's Daniel Faulkner. Mumia's brother, Billy, immediately jumps out and starts arguing with the cop. A scuffle happens. They start to tussle. And then Mumia comes from across the street with a gun and starts firing and hits Faulkner in the back. He falls down. As Faulkner is, is falling down, he manages to get his, his service pistol and get a shot off into Abu Jamal. And Abdul Jamal stands over him and fires the, 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 the uh, shots into his head. Now, a week prior to that, or 10 days prior to that, a very similar incident happened with Mumia's brother, where he was pulled over in the same Volkswagen, and he started an argument with the cop, and nothing happened. He was taken in, he was arrested, and they impounded the car. But for some uh, unknown reason, he was released the next day, and the car was. Was his brother doing the same thing? There were break-ins in cars in that area. A police officer thought they observed uh, Mumia's brother, Billy, breaking into a car, or he was suspected to breaking into a car. Also at that time, and we're going back, this is almost um, archaic or, or old, you know, this was in Center City, the 6th District, and Mumia's brother had a, a, a newspaper stand. Now, you know, enterprising place, you sell, you know, uh, candy, just like a newspaper stand today, although they are far and few between like they used to be. But out of that newsstand, he was suspected of selling marijuana. Oh, my God, that's terrible. <laughs> but, but back then, that was terrible. And also suspected of selling other drugs. So I'm getting a picture that Mumia's brother, Billy, had some run-ins with the police. And he was tired of it. Now, I'm going to be very honest here. The police back then were motherfuckers. They could be great. But if they're on your bad side or if you had a bad one, you're in a lot of trouble. So I think that Billy was getting tired of being harassed. At, at the time, he was breaking the law. Now, if he was breaking in the cars, that's breaking the law, too. And Mumia was in a bad place psychologically. We can go into that later. And I think that after that first arrest 10 days beforehand, that I don't know if Billy talked to Mumia or whatever, but we're not going to let this happen again. And the way that Mumia killed Faulkner was eerily similar to a tactic used by guerrillas. Uh, when I mean guerrillas, I mean the war term guerrilla, where they would draw people into a certain place, soldiers or whatever it is, for a, another reason. And then once they got to that location, they would come out of the bushes or wherever they were and ambush them. 
in New York City in the early 70s, two cops, and this was done by the Black Liberation Army, which was uh, Asada Shakur, who she, who's famous in- Oh, yeah. Who, oh, yeah. Joanne Chesimard uh, was one of the leaders. And what they did was, that I, I, I don't know if it was 71 or 70, but they had a car go down the wrong way on the street or do some infraction. The cops pulled him over and two BLA members came out with machine guns and killed the cops. One of them was a black cop. Wow. It was a white Italian and a black cop that were killed. BLA violence. Also, and it's in the film, Mumia was a very much a fan of Huey Newton. And Huey Newton killed a cop. And the circumstances were very similar to the way uh, Mumia killed Faulkner. Now, I say all this, and I get criticized for this. Well, oh, my God, you, you, you don't put into context the Panthers in the time. I understand that. And you know what? Maybe I should have, although it is in the film, I put in the context of what was going on. Maybe I should have better, done a better job of that. Uh, but again, it's about time. You have to make choices in the film. And so a few lines are said in the film about the racial climate and police brutality at the time. You're going to get radical groups that are going to arise when you don't address certain problems. And that's how the Black Liberation Army and the Black Panthers came to be. And they inspire people to do things that, you know, many people consider horrible. And they are. When you're going out and targeting cops because cops are the protectors of capitalism and property, you're going to, you're going to go after them because you can't take on the United States directly militarily. You, you'll use a war of attrition to start little uh, mini wars in cities and, and then hopefully bring it to its knees. That was the, the, the goal of the Panthers who were very inspired by Mao Zedong and what he did in China to take over China and turn it into Mao's China as a communist country. That was very inspirational with them, with, their, with, with Mao's um, Little Red Book. Mm-hmm. And that's where that, that phrase come out. I, I named the film, Political Power Grows Out of the Barrel of a Gun. That's from Mao Zedong. And Mumia was young and impressionable. And, and he, you know, he started in the pen in 16. Mumia is no, no dummy. He's very smart, very intelligent, very talented in his voice. So this inspired him. And many people thought a, a blow against the police, against capitalism, would, would usher in a revolution. There is a woman named Squeaky Fromm from uh, Oakland or San Francisco. She attempted an assassination on President Gerald Ford. And she has said, we thought that that shot fired was going to finally inspire people. Okay, this is real. It's going to spark a revolution. And that's the mindset that Mumia was in. One of the more interesting things in your documentary, you talk about uh, the Algerian writer. France Fanon. Fanon in his book, The Wretched of the Earth. Yes. Can you talk about his ideas as violence, as a revolutionary act, and as an act of personal liberation? No, I can't, because I would do a terrible <laughs> job of it. I am not a professor. I'm not an intellectual in that vein. But just like uh, Dr. Farber says in the film, it, he was very inspirational and influential in his writings, The Wretched of the Earth, uh, which I'm looking at right now, which you happen to mention. Uh, I don't want to have too much dead space. I'm trying to see when it was written. 1963, um, it came out. And it, in the film, and I'm hoping you can you can link the film in your podcast, Yeah. that Dr. Farber talks about, and, and I understood what he was saying, that uh, an act of revolu- revolutionary vi- violence, it, it's almost like 
can I say that it's like sex? It's like an orgasm. It's mm-hmm. it's like you do this act, and it feels so amazing because it is a way of saying we're on our way to our goal. He says in your film, you commit an act of violence, not just for its practical impact, but because when you are a revolutionary, you commit an act of violence, it liberates your consciousness. Yes. It teaches you what's possible. Yes. It teaches you to feel your own power. Yes. I thought that was so interesting because I know... Uh, we've been talking about celebrity murderers and they're kind of worshipped. And why is this going on? And it, it, it really made some connections with me with this kind of very, very far political left and a love of violence, really. I partially understand it. Uh-huh. I, and, and this might sound funny coming from a person who made this film. Uh, John Brown. You familiar with John Brown? No. All right, John Brown was a white man uh, that, if I tell you the story, you probably know. He led a raid on Harper's. He was anti-slavery. Oh, okay. And I agree with him. And Frederick Douglass. Sure. The only way you believe you would get freedom, because you're not going to get it the way legislation or anything else out of slavery, is violence. It's killing. You have to raise up. And John Brown led a, a raid on Harper's Ferry to take arms. And it was a suicide mission. And he, and he was convicted of doing that. And he was hanged. But he killed many people. And Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass had a problem. There were the abolitionists. They just wanted to appeal to America's conscience and say, you've got to change your laws. And Frederick Douglass prophetically said, that's not going to happen. The only way we're going to get freedom is through bloodshed. And the Civil War happened. And close to 800,000 people died for that. And I understand where it comes from. The problem is by the 19 late 60s and 70s, you had the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, the Civil War ended in 1865, and then you had a period of Reconstruction, which held a lot of promise, but that was stopped. You didn't really have the promise of America fulfilled until the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act where people really felt, okay, I really feel a part of this country. At the same time, you had radical groups like the Panthers, the Weather Underground, the SDS, and you had Vietnam. And a lot of these people were not feeling too good about things. And they had the same thing. The only way we're going to change this country is through violence. Now, the violence they advocated and the system they wanted, well, I think would be a disaster. The success that we've had, other than the Civil War, since the Civil War, is through legislation and through enacting laws and through marches, demonstrations, but really it's legislation. Mm -hmm. And that's how we fulfilled the promise of America. But I'm not surprised that you have leftist groups who look at these other countries, which, you know, I'm not a Rizzo fan, but in, in my film, Rizzo said, you know, when he was going after the Panthers, he said, Listen, these guys like Che Guevara and Ho Chi Minh, in those countries, if you expressed a, a different opinion, they'd chop your head off. He was right. That's right. But, I mean, do you see that right now they're being, the Black Panthers, <laughs> I would say their history has been kind of whitewashed, for lack of a better <laughs> metaphor. Listen, and I've said this before, prior to doing this film, I was a big fan of the Panthers. I didn't know all about them. Mm-hmm. 
And when I did the research, I went out to Oakland. I talked to Panthers. I, I talked to many of them that wouldn't go on camera. But um, there was another side to the Panthers. And they were like a gang. They Listen, I like the standing up against police brutality, of course. But there was another side of them that were, was like a gang that, that they were very influenced by Mao. And they, you talk about whitewash, a lot, a lot of Panthers today don't want to talk about this. They want to talk about the strategy that Mao took and Che Guevara. They wanted to start revolutions in cities. But I, I'll leave it at this. Eldridge Cleaver, who was a brilliant Panther, his, his book, it's very disturbing. It's called Soul on Ice. Yes, I went to school, uh, high school and college with his daughter. Okay. Eldridge Cleaver said in later years, and he got a lot of criticism for what he became in later years. He said, if we had gotten our way, uh, Huey and I had gotten our way, what we wanted to do, there would have been another Holocaust in the United States. Wow. That's a direct quote. Okay, back to movie. So I thought also what was really interesting is you talk about uh, Mumia and his brother trading identities. I don't know how old you are, Roberta, but there was a time. 48. Okay, we're not, we're not, I'm 53. There was a time where you didn't, it's, it's hard to believe, uh, well, at least in Philadelphia and, 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 and in New York, because I live in New York, you didn't have a, a picture ID for your driver's license. Mm -hmm. You just had a license with uh, the writing on it that this was so-and-so. So Roberta, if you had a if you had a license under Roberta Glass and you had a sister or a friend and take my license in case you get stopped, just say you're me. They could produce the license and Sally could say, your friend Sally could present this license and say, I'm Roberta Glass. And unless she was in some serious trouble, there really wouldn't be too much of an uproar about it because they wouldn't do too much of an investigation. So that's what Mumia and his brother did. And today's audience say, oh my God, they used to switch IDs. That was common. Your little brother who wants to get uh, wine from the shop, you give him your license and you go and you get wine from the shop in, in those days. Was that why they were doing it? Because they kept getting arrested and saying that they were the other person. That opens up a, an avenue for you to do all kinds of nefarious things if you want to. And that's what they were doing. Oh, okay. So Mummy has found... He's shot. He's found with a gun next to him, sitting on the side, right next to Officer Faulkner, and with a gun next to him. Right. This is not what you call a case of um, what the prosecutor describes as three really solid eyewitnesses. Actually, there were far more witnesses than the, the three used. But the three were the, those were the solid witnesses. True, but he talks about three of them in the in your documentary. No, I, right. I only know that it's not that. I, I got a chance to look at the entire case file. And uh, remember, this is the red light district at three o'clock in the morning. You have a lot of nefarious uh, people out there. So a lot of the witnesses that they had that gave a credible account of what happened, they didn't want to use because some of them were child molesters and everything else. But they had three very credible witnesses that saw what happened. But they did use one who was a prostitute. Yes. The other one worked at the airport and the other one was, I mean, th these are the three that are in your film. Other one is unemployed. So why do you think that this became a cause? To, like, why do you think that this was Mummy's case was taken up? The prosecutor says in your film that there's more evidence against him, against Mummy than any other case that he's had. So why this case? Uh, Sister Helen Prasian says in Barrel of a Gun, Mummy's case has politics in it. It has racism in it. It has all the things that affect our nation. Right. 
mummy he's seen as the ultimate dangerous african-american man do you agree with that i agree with her premise we disagree and i have a lot of respect for sister helen and it was an honor to meet her for this film because i was a big fan of dead man walking and the movie and uh, i am anti-death penalty Mm. we disagree and people can have a reasonable disagreement about the death penalty i understand that but i I agree with it had politics and had racism in it we disagree with the facts of the case and how it happened. Mumia, when he was arrested and charged, he was on the downslope of a very promising career as a radio journalist. He was considered to be one of the top people to look at the beginning of 1981, and he was descending into a hell, to a hell even when that article was, was posted. And the problem was, and your audience, uh, we'd have to go into the whole Moog situation, not 1985 that most people know about with the, the bombing of a house, but in 1978. But Mumia was a promising radio journalist. He had a beautiful voice and he was a very good looking guy at the time and he was marketable. So you get this guy who is arrested for killing a cop and they kind of changed the narrative of who he is. The narrative after that was that, well, when he was a radio journalist, he was a crusader against police brutality. I can't, and maybe one's out there, I couldn't find one article that he wrote <laughs> where he crusaded against police brutality. What he did do, he did talk about being the voice for the voiceless and the poor. And after 1978, he lost his ability to be rational and objective because of the MOVE incident that happened in August 8th, 1978, when the MOVE, the first MOVE incident. Wait, let's go a little slower. What is MOVE? MOVE is a group. It's a cult. And some people get real mad when you call it a cult. It's a cult. In the set, late 60s and 70s, cults were popular. Timothy O'Leary, Jim Jones. Cults were popular. You, you, you got a charismatic leader. And people would flock to them and they would do whatever they want. Well, the cult in Philadelphia was MOVE in the early 70s, 73, 74. And MOVE was started by John Africa and a a guy named, John Africa was black, Donald Glassley was white. And they started this back to nature group. They were anarchists. They they didn't take the racist angle before, but they had that. But it's that all governments were bad and we should live off the land and people should be free. Which, okay, that's fine. You want to do that? No problem with that. But the way to achieve that goal in the early days was to arm yourself and start violence. And they had a plan, they had a manifesto, as many cults have, and they wanted to go to all the major capitals of the world that were mostly capitalist and blow them up and bring everybody back to nature. This wasn't unheard of in the late 60s and 70s. You had cults that weren't do things like this all the time. The problem with cult, it's about the ego of the leader and how many women he can fuck or guys he can fuck or whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. So that move started in the early 70s. Now, Donald Glassy, the, the white guy that was a part of it, ended up the FBI. Uh, now, don't quote me on that because it was either FBI or some type of special investigation unit found out about the violence that they were planning and they did an undercover sting. And they found out they had bombs and they had all kinds of plans. And they arrested Glassy and Glassy ended up flipping and talking about what the plans were. He got out of trouble and John Africa got in trouble. But to John Africa's credit, he was able to, by defending himself, 
inexplicably defended himself against terrorism charges and bombings and everything else, and he won. Wow. He was able to succeed and go back to leading this cult called Move. So in 78, Move took over a house in a place called Palatin Village and terrorized his neighbors. Palatin Village was a very hip type of place to run a University of Pennsylvania. You had Black people, uh, upwardly mobile uh, professors, you had white people, and Move took over this house and started terrorizing neighborhoods, bullhorns, no electricity, the trash was all over the place. And for 18 months, they terrorized his neighborhoods on the bullhorn saying, you're all going to hell, fuck you, and all this type of stuff. Somehow, Mumia got attracted to this, and the neighbors were fed up, and finally the police got involved, and they went in to take him out, and there was a big shootout on August 8th, 1978. A cop was killed, and the move nine, and there's a, a documentary on HBO called 40 Years a Prisoner. It doesn't tell the whole story. <laughs> Imagine a documentary that doesn't tell the whole story. Yeah. It has some good points in it about the, the history, but they leave out a lot of context. So Mumia, he got captivated by Move after 1978. So when he was hired by different stations to report on stuff, he would only report on Move-related activities. And he ended up getting fired several times. One of the big things the supporters say, I think his lawyer even says in your film, he didn't have a fair trial. Why was Mumia ejected 13 times out of his own trial? I wish I could have gone more into this in the, to the film. Again, there's context for that. In the 70s, going back to the Chicago 7, there was among revolutionaries and that were brought up in court, there was a strategy, you disrupt the courtroom, you continue to yell and scream, and you try to take away the focus away from the evidence onto you and to the system. And many defendants were doing this. Mm-hmm. Bobby Seale in the Chicago 7, because he actually had some legitimate reasons, even though Bobby Seale has his issues too. And I talked to Bobby Seale, who was the co-founder of the Panthers with Huey Newton. Yep. So you had a series of courtroom disruptions that were going on. It happened in the Manton trial. It happened with the Chicago 7. And anyway, I, I make this point. It came to a point where Justice Berger was the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He held a symposium, and I couldn't put this in the film, it was in there, it's a deleted scene, where he convened a council to investigate courtroom disruptions because it was really uh, starting to have a problem on, on uh, courts and, and justice and how they're conducted in court. So Mumia saw this. And also, we can't ignore the fact that John Africa, through his disruptions and his tactics and his trials, was very successful because he got off. So Mumia decided he was going to make the trial a farce, disrupt, scream. He said he wanted John Africa as his counsel. Judge Sabo said, you can't have John Africa as your attorney, but you can have him advise you during the trial. Now, when Mumia was arrested, a group of prominent African-Americans got together to raise money to get him a prominent attorney to help him through his case. The myth out there is that this poor guy got arrested and, you know, he got a bad public defender and a guy named Anthony Jackson. Anthony Jackson was a well-regarded attorney and he was hired for Mumia Abu-Jamal because of that. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When Abu Jamal rejected, he kept rejecting Jackson as his private attorney because he wanted John Africa. And, and Jackson quit out of frustration. Judge Sabo, when he quit, appointed him to be his public defender. He went from a private attorney that's high priced to being his attorney as a so-called public defender. So when people say he had a public defender and didn't know what he was doing, that is false. And Anthony Jackson had to abide by the law and had an uphill battle in trying to defend Mumia, who was, by any accounts, out of control during his trial. And his purpose was deflect from the evidence, which was so overwhelming, to other issues Maybe he could convince one of the jurors to not convict him. It didn't work. So speaking of deflecting from the evidence, I'm going to move a little bit forward into the history of Momia. He gets sentenced to death. He's on death row. December 9th was the 40th year anniversary of Daniel Faulkner's murder. He's had a campaign for four decades. A couple decades in, he brings out this confession of Arnold Beverly. Yes. Can you talk about a little bit about Arnold Beverly, Beverly's confession? Arnold Beverly is the invention of lawyers, of Leonard Wineglass. <laughs> Leonard Wineglass, actually, if you watch, there's a, the, the film is on by Aaron Sorkin, who's a writer I respect highly. He did a film called The Trial of the Chicago 7. Yeah. And Leonard Wineglass got his fame along with William Kunstler as one of the attorneys of the Chicago 7. Leonard Wineglass, and I talked, Leonard Wineglass is dead. I, I got his number and I called Leonard Wineglass and, and uh, I, I was tickled pink. I'm here on the phone talking to Leonard Wineglass, one of the great civil rights attorneys. And he said he wouldn't talk to me on film unless Mumia gave permission. So Mumia doesn't give permission to anyone who's not probably a diehard supporter, right? There's a guy named E. Stephen Collins, who is a a broadcaster, a very respected broadcaster, he passed away a few years ago, and he did a lot of great things for Black journalism in, in Philly. The night of or the night before the murder, Mumia had spaghetti with E at his house, E. Stephen Collins. And the reason E had him over was to talk to him saying, listen, you need to get your act together. You're, you're very talented, but you're causing a lot of problems. You're getting fired. You're, you're doing this. You're doing that. Get your act together. And that very night, that very morning, the next day, is when he shot and killed Faulkner. I called E. Stephen, who I'd had a relationship with him before. And I said, E, I've got to interview you. You were, by all accounts, the last person to be with Lumia that night. And he said to me, 
if Mumia gives the okay for me to talk to you, I'll do it. This is like the second time I heard this. I said, you're East Stephen Collins. You're a respected journalist in this town. Everybody knows who you are. You have to get permission from Mumia to talk to me? Uh, do you not have an objective look at this at this case? Or you do you think Mumia did it? Or what, what's the deal here? Again, if Mumia says I can talk to you, I can talk to you. That told me everything. That he, he had bought into the narrative hook, line, and sinker. It just seems like Mumia took John Africa's place as this kind of cult leader. I mean, people call him a prophet, a revolutionary, greatest thinker. He's giving commencement speeches at colleges. I mean, what what other killer? What, and he's a cop killer. I mean, what other? Yes, he is. I mean, there's a couple. But he's a cop killer in a larger cause. I, this is me interpreting what it means. I'm not endorsing this. Thank you. Thank you. Because, yes. but now he's no longer on death row. So if you're going to say it's an anti, well, I thought that's where you were going with that. Is it meaning that, is that the cause or is it? Well, my film was a year old when um, I did another big screening with Michael Schmerkanish at a big theater. And right before that, the district attorney at the time, Seth Williams, through Maureen Faulkner, they decided to take the uh, death penalty off of the table. And a lot of people are upset about that, but Maureen having a, you know, she's a widow, she's been going through a lot. And this would take out the the sting of, or the the movement of the anti-death penalty crowd. We're gonna take that off and just sentence him to life in prison. And I, myself, and many other people thought, okay, that's the end of the Mumia Abu-Jamal saga. Because as much of the controversy it was, it attracted a lot of people because of the anti-death penalty crusade. If you were to tell me in 2011 that here we are in 2021 and this is still case is still in the courts, I say you're crazy. So in the end, it's it's it, listen, I, I I'm not one that does not understand and acknowledge there's a lot of problems in our society. Although it's it's always it's, it's much better than it was, and we have more transparency than ever before. But you were to tell me that this would still be a case, I'd say you're crazy. Also, the other, I mean, the other very interesting thing that happened after your documentary was, so they move him into general population, and then he gets hep C, and they fight for him to get this treatment. And I tried to get a number on it, but it's all over the place from anywhere from like 98. I mean, it goes, I've read $180,000. Almost a hundred thousand, a little less than a hundred thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars for this hepatitis treatment that they wanted the people to pay for him. Listen, you're in jail. You do your sentence. You you, you treat people who mainly, if they have a problem, you, you treat it. But knowing the, knowing the the Mumia Incorporated folks, they need a controversy, and the dollars flow in. Right. So when you say Mumia has hepatitis C, he's on his deathbed. It's a cash cow. And then when uh, COVID happened, they started raising uh, that he had COVID. I mean, he might have. I mean, it's not hard to think that he did with, with, with close quarters and what was going in. But it raises money for them, the cause, and everything else. This has been repeated since the beginning. There's different treatments for hepatitis C, but this was the newest, most expensive treatment. There's at least one Hollywood screenwriter that I know that couldn't afford it that went through a trial program. 
I'm, I'm just making a distinction between treating it and treating it in this extremely expensive premier way. Like, yeah, I, you, you know about that more than I do, but based on what you're saying, I'm, I'm not surprised. Okay. That's, I just thought it was so interesting. I thought the whole hep C thing, I thought was so fascinating and he won. So how does he get all these great lawyers? Is it because it's a cash cow? Well, again, he's a great subject. He's, well, he's not, you know, he's older now, but he, he was good looking. He spoke well. And he was a, he was a former Black Panther. And he was a Black Panther. The guy went out to Oakland. It's the people who were Panthers back then knew who Mumia was. They said Mumia, the brother from Philadelphia. But they knew him as Wes Cook mm. back then. Why did he take the name Mumia Abu-Jamal? Uh, forgive me, I can't remember the exact reason. But at some point in 78, 79, maybe before. No, it was, it was before then. He took it. I, I can't remember the reason. I do have the in my files. It's not like he converted to being a Muslim or something. I don't know if he fully did that or not. The MOVE group is more of a, their religion is nature. Mm-hmm. I honestly don't know exactly the reasons for him converting. Okay, thank you. So um, they just got rejected for, Mumia just got rejected for a, a new trial. Again. Again. Uh, do you think this will, they will continue to push on until he's out? And what, uh, what is the uh, Larry Krasner, the, he's a very far left DA, what's his role in this? I know Maureen Faulkner has a lot of support, um, Daniel Faulkner's widow in Philadelphia. Is this a possibility of him ever getting out? Let, let me say this. And, and actually, I, this is a criticism of myself, of which I have many of myself. I have not spent a lot of time paying attention to the Mumia Abu-Jamal case in the past few years. And I should have, maybe, because I might come across a person like you that, you know, does a great job of reporting on these things and want to know what's going on. I was at the 40th anniversary commemoration the other day, and there's a, a lawyer by the name of George Paquetto, who is um, defending Maureen against these new accusations in the EA's office. But what has happened is, and this happened about three years ago, the lawyers came out when D.A. Krasner came in. Listen, I am no fan of Krasner. I do want to see justice. He's done some things with the exoneration project where if these people are innocent and they should not have been jailed. Now, I don't, I'm not as well versed on that stuff as you are. But if, if they are, <laughs> I'd like to see them free. Me too. Now, I, that's all I'll say. If that's what he's doing, I like that. What other things he's doing, I, I really have a problem with. Now, when Krasner came in, an appeal was filed. And the lawyers of Mumia Abu-Jamal said, in the offices of the DA's office, they found a box that was hidden with new evidence that shows there was collusion between the prosecution and the police department to convict Abu Jamal. And they have absolute proof on these so-called lost files. Well, Roberta, I have seen the box that they're talking about. I saw it 10 years ago and I was given access to it because of some connections I had. And there's nothing in that box <laughs> that proves there was collusion. They're going on the fact <laughs> that the taxi driver that was one of the witnesses, he says in the memo, he gave his testimony, 
he says at the end, when can I come and pick up my money? Now, this is a, a taxi driver that's, I don't know what education he has, uh-huh. not being judgmental, but he says he could have phrased it better. He was looking for the money for the promised parking that the, the district attorney's office would give him <laughs> for coming to take He could have said, when can I come to get my money for the parking? But he said, when can I come and get my money? So the, the Mumia people go crazy. I bet. They, they are paying these witnesses. It just proves it, blah, 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 blah. And this is what justice in America in 2021 looks like in Philadelphia. If you can put that out there and put it before a court, you might be able to get a new trial based on that. Based on total, total ridiculousness. Which is total bull. I know. I know. I got a, <laughs> I got a bunch of episodes on that. So- can we go back to Arnold Beverly? Can you just talk about what Arnold Beverly said and how did they find him and what? Aunt, listen, okay. And I can't use the person's name, but when I was making this film, <laughs> an African-American woman contacted me. Okay, I, I can't give too much information. An African-American woman contacted me in the early days of Facebook to say that, oh, if I say this, I might give her away. She, well, I'll just say this. She was very close to the Arthur Beverly situation and that he was a fraud and that he was paid to say what he said. No kidding. (laughs) Which is not surprising to you, but this woman was very close. I can't say it because I would give her up her identity. No, yeah. Can you just describe what the Arnold Beverly confession is? Because it's so amazing. Arnold Beverly uh, was this guy that was in jail that, it's in the movie. You guys, hopefully she'll link the movie. It's, it's, it's I'll link the movie. Watch Arnold Beverly's confession. It's amazing. He's this guy. He gives a video <laughs> deposition, and he's reading off a cue card. <laughs> and I'll never forget, in the theater, the first night, people were cracking up after seeing his confession. It was just like, and then uh, I saw Spot the Dog run <laughs> across... Uh, 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 is that what is is that a okay is that the the, uh, the street i mean it is so laughable so but so he says he was a guy hired by the mafia to assassinate faulkner or or, i can't remember the the ludicrous story i can't i I don't even remember for the police department it's a ludicrous story was there was corruption and the mafia yeah and he was the one that was hired to kill and he did it yeah, and then he says, and then I shot him. Yes. And then I shot Officer Faulkner. And then he looks over, like, almost like he's looking at cue cards, like, and there's a long pause. And then he goes, yes, at close range. And he's in sunglasses yes. and a trucker hat. It is the most amazing confession. It's just the most amazing taste. This is the invention of Leonard Wineglass. And then you had a lot of attorneys to quit after that. You're like, this, That's right. this is crazy. We can't do You are damaging this man's case. And what you do so brilliantly in your film after Arnold Beverly's confession is you cut to Pam Africa saying, why didn't the police, why didn't the DA investigate Arnold Beverly's confession? And I just love the way you did that because you can see what an absolute true believer Pam Africa is. Like she will turn out the lights when everyone else leaves move she will still be there. She's the PR person. She, well, she's just a true believer in the in John Africa and the move thing. She is the ultimate 
cult members. I mean, there's there are cult members, and then there are cult members, and then there are the people who will go down with a ship, you know. And yeah, that's the other thing I was going to say. You know, we just had the uh, the Rittenhouse trial, and, which was very divisive politically. And the right Rittenhouse to the right Rittenhouse was a hero. I see why Carl Rittenhouse was. Oh no, I do too. I'm just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. As a person, he becomes. He was on trial for murder, and they become a symbol for something else. Yes. My my yes. my question yes. to you is: What do you think Mumia really is a symbol for? What are you people latching onto? Mumia doesn't have the juice he used to have. The the people that have the juice today are the Kyle Rittenhouses, and and again, based on I understand why he was acquitted. Well, me too. But they'll make Kyle a symbol of something more. Mumia to people wrongly is a symbol of the persecuted black man taking advantage of a corrupt system and framed. And you have a lot of instances where that was true, but with Mumia Abu-Jamal, it's not true. And you throw in the reputation of the Philadelphia Police Department in the 1970s, which was pretty bad. You had the feds come in and investigate Philly. People will give him the benefit of the doubt. That's fine. You want to give somebody the benefit of the doubt because of the history and context. My fear is you're going to bet on the wrong horse. And to me, Mumia is an egomaniac. He's a cult leader. He's the typical time where you fight for him. And if you got the freedom, the first person he's going to get rid of is you. The person that, if you can think too much for yourself, just like Mao, Mao with the Cultural Revolution, he got rid of all the intellectuals and the people that could think. Mumia is a narcissist. He's, he's an egomaniac. And he is not worthy of the support that people give him. There are other people that are worthy of that support. And that's what Mumia, Mumia is. What made you want to make a documentary about Daniel Faulkner's killer, Mumia Abu-Jamal? Well, you know, you say make a documentary about Daniel Faulkner's killer, Mumia Abu-Jamal. I, I didn't look at it that way. I The murder and the subsequent controversy after it always was something that was in the back of my mind and interested me. And um, I was at a place called the Pen and Pencil Club in Philadelphia, drinking late one night. It was about two o'clock in the morning. They're open later. And uh, a guy named Mike Strug, who was a TV reporter in Philly, and um, we were talking. He said, what do you want to do next? And my film, Shame of the City, had just come out. And I said, I, I'm thinking about this Mumia thing. What, what, what do you think about it? And we're sitting in, at this bar. He said, it's funny you say that. There's a guy that's in here tonight that was actually a police officer the night that Danny was brought to the hospital at Jefferson uh, when he was shot. And he's pointed me to the guy. He said, I can introduce you to him. And that guy's name was Bill Calarulo. And we sat down and we talked and he, he gave me this riveting account of that night about how he was a rookie cop and he was, you know, walking the beat and he got a call to get to the hospital just to be outside of it. And that Danny Faulkner, who he didn't know at the time, was rushed to the hospital and he saw him and uh, that he had been shot. And, you know, what's not usual is the perpetrator or the doer, as they call it, was also brought to the same hospital and he saw him. So he gave me this riveting account of that night. And I was just like, wow, I think I really do want to do this story. 
I, you know, from what I had known, and I had seen a 2020, a famous 2020 broadcast of it, I, I, I tended to think he was guilty, but I didn't know. I was, I was going into it with, with an open mind. And when I talked to Bill that night, I said, well, Bill, I, I'm a filmmaker. I, I, I'm thinking of doing this next. Would you cooperate? And he said, yeah. And he gave me his number and told me to call him. And then he blew me off for like six months. <laughs> so it's not necessarily I want to do it on Mumia. It, it was the entire controversy that interested me. And that's how I got involved. That was the summer of either the spring or summer of 2006. What, what made his account so riveting, do you think? Well, you hear this guy. He's, he's, he's wet behind the ears. He hasn't been in the police that long. And one of his first major encounters of a crisis is a cop being shot. And he's there and he says, and it's in the film, he says he looked at him. He, he could see he was he could see he was dead when he arrived, even though they tried to revive him. And he's always very emotional about it, as you would be. And then you're seeing the killer or the, the alleged killer at the time being brought to the hospital. This is a rookie cop who hadn't had much experience. And this was his first experience with a, a traumatic crisis. And uh, that's what made it so riveting to me. You have almost every major figure in this documentary. How did you get so many, on both sides, supporters, non-supporters, lawyers for Mumia? How did you get all these people to say yes? It wasn't easy. It's never going to be easy with something like this. It's not that I'm some Superman. You have to be persistent and you have to be respectful and you have to be patient. Patience is a virtue. With Joe McGill, there was an HBO documentary about this case that came out in the mid-90s called A Case of Reasonable Doubt. HBO got all the major players in the beginning. And through the clout at the time of HBO, they told the people on the Faulkner side that, listen, we're doing an objective documentary on the Faulkner case. And all the major players agreed to participate. And if you see the film, it was really very one-sided. You know, the people on, on the Faulkner side called it a hatchet job. It was all about the Mumia didn't do it. He was innocent. So they felt betrayed and said, I'm never going to participate in something like this again. That was one strike. The HBO doc was, was a strike against it. And my color was a strike against it. Not inherently. I mean, they see a Black person who's telling this story. They automatically assume you have a certain um, position. I, I understand where that comes from. Mm -hmm. So I have to thank three people that helped me with this. And I couldn't have done it without them. A cop named Tommy Gibbons, who has passed on a couple of years ago, who I loved to death. He saw what I was trying to do. And Tommy Gibbons was unique because Tommy Gibbons was a former cop who turned to a journalist. His dad used to be the chief of police in Philadelphia. And his dad instituted or enacted, I'm sorry, I should say, a lot of reforms that were unheard of in big city police departments. Like you used to be able to buy, if you want to be a lieutenant, you get some money and you grease a palm and you become a lieutenant. Well, Tommy Gibbons' father stopped that. And Tommy Gibbons grew up with his dad as the police commissioner. And he also was shot during the early 70s when Philadelphia was, was in a lot of turmoil, he was shot as a cop and he uh, went into rehab and then he retired, said, I can't do this anymore. 
and he went into journalism and he became a very well respected reporter at the Inquirer. Oh, interesting. And I had a yeah, I had a discussion with Tommy Gibbons and I said, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to tell both sides of this story and find out what really happened here. And he said, I see what you're trying to do. I will help you. And he made some calls on my behalf that helped me. Another person that helped me was Mike Strug, who made the initial introduction to Bill Colarulo at that night at the Penn and Pencil Club at 2.30 in the morning. And Mike Strug was a reporter on Channel 10. And he saw what I was trying to do. And both of these people, they had seen my film, The Shame of the City. So I had a little, little tiny bit of credibility with that. And the third person that really helped me was, at the time, Police Commissioner Sylvester Johnson, who was an African-American commissioner and also the first Muslim commissioner in, in the United States. He and I sat down and talked, and he talked about the challenges he had, not only as a Black police commissioner, but as a Muslim commissioner. And this is a few years after 9-11, and he helped me. So that helped me in addition to me being patient. I've learned patience. I learned to be patient, patient based on the film I had done before and uh, waiting people out. The prosecutor, Joe McGill, who really got sandbagged by the HBO documentary, it took me six to seven months before he would even sit down and have a, a discussion with me. But eventually he came on board and people started coming on board. And the Mumia side too was very skeptical because of my film, The Shame of a City, which they saw it as an attack on John Street. It wasn't an attack on John Street. It was about a mayoral race about an FBI bug that was used, it was used to polarize and um, win a mayoral election. And I, I just showed what happened. I, I didn't have an agenda going into that film. It was fascinating, but uh, I didn't have an agenda with that. So the Mumia side was skeptical because of that, but I have to give credit to a Mumia supporter who we disagree on almost everything, but Pam Africa, she calls herself the minister of propaganda. And Pam was like, okay, I'm going to help you get some access to some people because she was very pro Mumia. And uh, she, was, she would go around and say, tell everybody, introduce me. This motherfucker here, I've given him all the real information. So if he doesn't, if he doesn't show it the right way, you know I try. But Pam and I, you know, Pam would cuss me out in public, but in, per, you know, in person we were cool. So she helped me with access to the Mumia side. Last question. Um, what are you up to? What yes. are you up to now? And, and where can people find you it's on social media? Uh, as you probably know, I'm terrible at Twitter. <laughs> uh, in, tw in 2022, I have to change that. I, okay, uh, you can reach me on Facebook, Tigre Hill, T-I-G-R-E-H-I-L-L. -L. I'm on Facebook. Both there's a fan page, which I need to do more of, and my personal page. I'm on Twitter. In 2022, I will do a better job of pumping that up. And um, what's the other? I'm on Instagram, Tigre underscore Hill. And hopefully you can put the link for the movie after this. I, I will. I have a film coming out titled 72 Seconds of Rittenhouse Square about a, a, a murder that happened in Philly in Rittenhouse Square, but it's a universal topic. That'll be out sometime next year. I finally am going to get my film on organized crime out next year called The Corrupt and the Dead. And I'm working on a narrative project that I've been working on a long time. Hopefully that'll see the light of day next year as well. So that's what I'm up to. This has been a, a really delightful uh, Tigre Hill. Thank you so much.
And thank you. Uh, it's it, you. You uh, contacted me a while ago. It's finally uh, nice to finally get to connect. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Ah, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+ plus. terms and conditions apply. See website for details.